Hi everybody and welcome back to the Dark History Podcast. Hope everybody is well. Thank you everyone for the massive support that has been shown. I can't believe how quick this show is growing. So, in episode 7, we're going to go back to the good old Soviet Union and another one of Stalin's experiments. We spoke we spoke about the Holodomor about a month ago now. And if you haven't listened to that episode, what are you doing? Go and listen to it first. I'm only joking. That episode isn't connected to this at all. But I did talk about the Kulaks and how they were arrested and taken to the Gulag system. Unfortunately for those people, the lucky ones were killed. So today, we were talking about the Gulag system. But one ordeal in particular, the real Hunger Games on Xeno Island. As a warning, this does get very dark, so listen with caution. With that out of the way, please sit back, relax and enjoy more Dark History. For those of you who don't know, the Soviet Gulag systems were labour camps and accompanying detention centres. Prisons that from the 1920s to the mid-50s housed the political prisoners and criminals of the Soviet Union. At its height, the gulags imprisoned millions of people. A system of forced labour camps was first inaugurated by Soviet decree on April 15, 1919, and underwent a series of administrative and organisational changes in the 1920s, ending with the founding of the gulag under the control of the secret police, OGPU, and later the NKVD and the KGB. Gulags had a total inmate population of about 100,000 in the late 1920s when it underwent an enormous expansion coinciding with Soviet leader Joseph Stalin's collectivization of agriculture. By 1936, the Gulags held a total of 5 million prisoners, a number that was probably equaled or exceeded every subsequent year until Stalin died in 1953. Not only were the rich or the resistant peasants arrested during collectivizations, persons sent to the gulags included purged Communist Party members and military officials, Germans or other Axis prisoners of war during World War II, members of ethnic groups suspected of disloyalty, Soviet soldiers and other citizens who had been taken prisoner or used as slave labour by the Germans during the war, suspected saboteurs or traitors, dissidents, intellectuals, ordinary criminals and many utterly innocent people who were hapless victims of Stalin's purges. At its height, the gulags consisted of many hundreds of camps, which the average camp holding 2,000 to 10,000 prisoners. Most of these camps were corrective labour colonies, in which prisoners felled timber, laboured on general construction projects, such as building canals on railroads or working in mines. Most prisoners laboured under the threat of starvation or execution if they refused. It's estimated that a combination of very long working hours, harsh climates and other working conditions, inadequate food and summary of executions killed tens of thousands of people each year. Western scholars estimate the total number of deaths in the gulags in the period from 1918 to 1956 ranged from 1.2 to 1.7 million. The gulag started to shrink soon after Stalin's death. 
hundreds of thousands of prisoners were amnestied from 1953 to 1957, by which time the camp system had returned to its proportions of the early 1920s. Indeed, the gulags were officially disbanded, its activities were absorbed by various economic ministers and the remaining camps were grouped in in 1955 under a new body, the GUITK Galvanoi Umpravlin Ispavitilino Trudoi Colony or Chief Administration of Corrective Labour Colonies. Whoa, sorry for the murderous Russian pronunciations. Now I know some people listening to this will have listened to the Holodomor episode and have heard me waffle on about the Kulaks and their plight in the Soviet Union at the time. But for those of you who haven't, I will give you a brief history. In 1929, Stalin faced an issue. The Kulaks in Ukraine were in a thinly veiled revolt against the collectivized policies, choosing to break their tools, slaughter their animals and destroy their equipment rather than hand it over to the Soviet authorities who were pushing them into huge collective farms. Kulaks, essentially wealthy peasants, had been declared enemies of the state and the term had come to be used not just for the wealthy peasants but anyone disagreeing with Stalin's policies. Hundreds of thousands were arrested, along with other groups targeted by Stalin's reforms, those without an internal passport, for instance. The internal passport had been a Tsarist invention aimed at keeping people shackled to the land they worked, and Stalin had brought it back for much of the same reasons. An internal passport was issued to those doing work deemed important by the state, and failure to have one meant that you essentially weren't a full Soviet citizen and lacked the few rights offered by the government at the time. Right, I hope we're all caught up. Obviously, if you wanted more in-depth explanation, check out the Holodomor episode. Sorry for the shameless plug. By 1933, it was all coming to a head the Soviet Union gulag system was drowning in political dissidents, gulags and other common criminals. A solution needed to be found, and Jenrik Gogoda had the solution, which was almost brilliant in its cynicism. The future head of the NKVD today is famous for a rise to the top, and then someone who Stalin got bored with and had shot. But at the time, he was the current leader of the utter mess that was the collectivization campaign. The USSR needed to set up collective farms to pull themselves out of famine's grip, so why not condemn all the kulaks to forced labour on collective farms? Easy. Resettling prisoners to work in some of Russia's most hostile lands would both punish them and provide for the struggling USSR give them tools and make them build their own self-sustaining farms. With all these farms, the famine would be solved and the harsh Siberian weather would provide the punishment. So pleased with his idea, Yogoda gave the order to increase arrests. Suddenly, minor offences, like the previously mentioned lack of a passport, meant certain arrests. And with such high police quotas and the threat of arrest if they weren't met, people were simply abducted off the streets. Yogoda acted so quickly that he didn't even obtain Stalin's seal of approval. One account of this farcical legal system comes from Kuzma Salnikov, a married miner from Novokonetsk. Kuzma was a staunch communist. Then, one day, he happened to go to the market without his internal passport, just as the police sealed off the building. 
he was departed from his own city without a chance to even inform his wife. He never saw her or his two kids again. Just a quick caveat here, remember this man's name. Unfortunately, the story of Salnikov was just one of many. There was the tale of the 12 year old girl abducted by police while she waited for her mother to buy bread. A 103 year old man snatched by the police as he went outside for her. A student snatched off his doorstep by the police in Moscow and a pregnant lady departed for having no passport even though she had it clutched in her hand. All across the USSR, hundreds of thousands simply vanished. As families desperately searched for their loved ones, the police were stocking them into trains bound for the Russians' interior and to their new lives as essentially slaves working on some of the most inhospitable land on earth. And these train rides were no joke, packed into windowless train compartments, no contact with the outside world for weeks. Death and disease rampant among the tightly packed people. Thousands of innocent people would die before they even arrived. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. The issues talked about in these sections are quite disturbing, so please listen with caution. Given the immense cruelty inflicted, you would be forgiven to believe that the Soviet system was a fine-tuned machine of repression. But it wasn't the case. The Siberian officials weren't even informed that they were about to receive thousands of prisoners until the first trains appeared. Imagine the surprise when in April of 1933, 25,000 people arrived in the rural and remote city of Tomsk, situated in the Tomsk Oblast, in the centre of Russia. The officials in Tomsk must have been like, what do we do now? You see, Yogoda, in his brilliance, implemented his quotas so fast that he let the logistics of it all get bogged down in red tape. Tomsk was underprepared for such a huge influx of people, and as we all know, Stalin was never a forgiving man. Officials were terrified that Joseph would go on one of his infamous festivals of mass execution of party officials and hold it all in Siberia. By May of 1933, Tomsk held 90,000 prisoners, but yet to receive any wisdom on what to do with them, so officials began to send them out into the wilderness. The first 5,000 prisoners and 50 guards were loaded onto four barges meant to haul timber and sent down river to begin the 800 kilometer or 497 mile journey down the Ob River bound for the island of Nazino. Like any journey of these poor people, it was going to be torturous. They were kept below deck. The river was still choked with ice and in that area of Siberia, it was ravaged with severe snowstorms. By the time these people reached the island on the 18th of May, 1933, 27 people already weak from sickness and hunger, had died on the journey. They would be the first of many lives that this doomed experiment would claim. 
and for what was about to come, they were probably the luckiest 27 people the world has ever seen, as the rest would see what hell was truly like. On the north banks of the Ob River, deep in the Siberian wilderness of central Russia, is a low-lying marshland, three kilometres long and less than 600 metres wide. This tiny scrap of earth bore no name for most of history. Its only visitors were the local Ostiak people who came to the island to collect tree bark. It would be from their local village Nazino, which is sometimes rendered as Nazinsky, that the island would get its name. But on May 18, 1933, this island became the scene of the most horrific nightmare-fueled event of the Gulag system and gained the name Cannibal Island. When the remaining prisoners were unceremoniously dumped ashore on Nazino Island, they realised there was no shelter, no food, and no means of acquiring either. The few trees that were on the island could be used to build a hut, but the officials in Tomsk, in their haste to rid the city of these prisoners, had failed to give them any tools. Here, they stood on a desolate island, which was covered in a banquet of snow. As night set in, no way of making shelter or a fire. Left with no choice, the settlers slept in the open in a blizzard. At the dawn of May the 19th, 1933, the night had claimed another 295 souls. So beginning a fight for survival that would make the Hunger Games look like a game of tag. Almost all the people dumped on the island were innocent people that had been plucked from the cities on passport charges. They had none of the agricultural skills that real Kulaks had, or any of the survival skills necessary to combat such a harsh environment. This would become a real problem, as the stocks of bread they had been given on the barges had run out, and the guards couldn't be bothered to bake the bread with the flour they had brought and deliver it to the island. Instead, they handed each person 200 grams of flour for sustenance. This was 100 grams less than what would be given to the prisoners of Auschwitz seven years later. Already starving, many of the prisoners mixed the raw flour with filthy river water, leading to dysentery outbreaks sweeping through the island and killing even more people. And scarily, this was only the second day. I understand if this is the place that some of my dear listeners may choose to turn off this episode, as the worst is still to come. May 22nd, 1933, just four days after the barges had arrived, the suffering had reached new levels. The freezing rain that battered the island was claiming lives nightly, due to the prisoners still having no shelter. While those who managed to build fires simply slept too close and burned to death. To combine this misery, the guards, who had set up a camp off the island, hadn't returned to give the people any more flour. At this point, the people, who were just clinging to their humanity, mustered enough strength to hold a protest and started a riot. They made enough noise that the guards began to sail to the island to see what was going on. When the prisoners said they wanted food, the guards duly obliged their request, but not on a person-by-person basis. Instead, the remaining people would have to organise themselves into groups of 150 people, 
each group would elect a leader and that man would have to be, have the responsibility of distributing the rations. At this point, any solidarity left on the island was crushed because among the settlers were a minority of violent and outright sociopathic people. These people presented themselves as different group leaders. The guards just shrugged and handed the flower to them. So the process began of starving to death for the majority of people. Now I can hear the cries of why not just escape. The guards weren't actually on the island. They were on the mainland, so to speak, living it up in their camps. And the answer is, they did try. Remember Kuzmin Salnikov? See, I told you to remember him. Well, Kuzmin, in the early days, mustered up what little strength he had, jumped into the Frigidob River and swam to the opposite bank and escaped into the harsh wilderness. Miraculously, he managed to find a collective farm and lived out his days. But Salnikov was the exception to the rule. Most people who braved the Ob River drowned or they made it to the banks and were shot dead by the guards. And well, if you were lucky enough or unlucky enough to make it past all of that, the well-fed guards would hunt you down with dogs for sport. This brings us neatly to the cruelty the guards inflicted on the already desperate people of Cannibal Island. From the patrol barges, the guards would get blind drunk, go on deck and shoot any prisoner they saw just for target practice. Other times they would sail into the island with a hunk of bread, hurl it into a crowd of people and watch them tear each other apart for the scrap of food. Of course, there were young women on the island. Guards would trade food for sex and others would get the criminal aspect of the island to rip the gold teeth out of prisoners in exchange for cigarettes and food. Now if the guards would have just dropped these people off and left, it would have been a hellhole. But by staying, they made it into a deluge of cruelty and misery and compounded an already desperate situation into an all-like free-for-all of death. So, if you've reached this point in the episode, well done, you have a strong stomach. But this next section will test this. So yet again, please listen with caution, as we are about to talk about the actual cannibalistic side of our story. On May 25th, just one week after the boats had landed, the camp doctor made a gruesome discovery. During the autopsy of five prisoners, he discovered the first signs of cannibalism on their bodies. When he relayed his findings to the officials back in Tomsk, he was told that the prisoners were all degenerate and obviously cannibals by nature. Not two days later, a further 1,000 prisoners were sent to the island. Did they bring any food or tools with them? Well, what do you think? By now, all humanity had left that shred of land. Gangs of stronger prisoners roamed around, terrorising the weaker people. Murdering for food became commonplace and this still was not enough. As a cold June crept in, the survivors did the only thing they could do to stay alive. They began to eat the bodies that littered the ground. Now, I could tell you the gruesome facts of this ordeal, but I don't think it would hold much weight. So I can give you some accounts of what happened and let the people speak for themselves. One prisoner, who after this ordeal was over, was questioned by officials about his part in the taboo of eating human flesh. It was simple, just like Shashlik, 
We made skewers with willow branches, cut into pieces and roasted it over the campfire. I picked those who were not quite living, but not quite dead yet. It was obvious they were about to go, but only in a day or two. So it was easy to go that way now, quickly, then suffer for another two or three days. The horrors of this island didn't end there. This was madness on a deranged scale. An account from a girl from the Ostiak people who wandered onto the island to collect bark witnessed one harrowing account of a woman who had been sleeping with a guard called Kostia for food. And when she returned to the island, she was caught, and in this girl's words, she was tied to a poplar tree. They cut off her breasts and muscles, everything they could eat, everything, everything. They were hungry, they had to eat. It wasn't long after this, when the permanent of Ophelia Bailia opened the door to a 40-year-old woman with legs wrapped in rags. Not long after they removed the rags to discover she had no calves. They had been sliced off for food. Nazino Island had not only become a place where people ate the dead, or nearly dead, to survive, but had become a place where some tortured their victims before consuming them. Luckily, this suffering was coming to an end, as even this level of horror was too much for the Soviets. By mid-June, the Tomsk officials abruptly ended the month-long horror show. The surviving prisoners were removed to other collective farms or labour camps, and the guards were returned to Tomsk. In total, 6,700 people endured the horrendous month-long ordeal on Cannibal Island, with 2,200 surviving. The other 4,500 perished, killed by the elements, or were straight-up murdered. By August, the summer grass had grown so tall that the remaining corpses still rotting on the Zeno Island were covered up, and the knowledge of the nightmare that unfolded during that month period was only etched into the minds of survivors or locals. The only reason we know anything about this is because of Vasily Velichko, a communist instructor who lived locally to the collective farms that dotted the manks of the Ops River. In July 1933, he started to hear whispers of the catastrophe that had befallen the island. Without speaking to his superiors, he began to investigate. His trek to Nazino Island ended in August of 1933, when he discovered nothing out of the ordinary on the island. The tall summer grass, sparse trees and handful of locals looked normal, but when he stepped foot on the island, he soon discovered the half-eaten bodies laying just out of sight. Over the next couple of weeks, Velichko interviewed anyone who would talk to him about the terror that had unfolded on the island. He submitted an 11-page report of his findings to Moscow. Anyone guess what happened next? That's right, he was fired from his position, kicked out of the party, and his report was buried in state archives. Luckily, a couple of high-ranking officials with a shred of human decency left, read the report and put in motion policies that would stop this happening again. All 50 guards were kicked out of the party and arrested. I would love to tell you that these people suffered the same cruelty they had endured on the people of Nazino Island, but I can't. They all served less than 12 months in prison before they were released. Velichko's report only came to light in 1994, after the collapse of the Soviet Union.
Well, if you made it to this point, truly well done. It was a hard story to research, write and record. I can't even imagine the suffering these people went through. But the scary thing is, the Soviet Union was so notorious for being secretive. So is this the only one? Or were there more camps like Nazino Island? I mean, I know about the Road of Bones and the countless other gulags that I'm sure had a lot of suffering and death. But are there any others with this level of depravity locked away in the archives that will never see the light of day? There is one story I do find difficult to believe, but it does appear in every account I've read, and that is the lady who had no calves. How did she get there? Obviously, she couldn't walk. And also, she was on an island, so how did she swim? There are just too many holes in that story for me. But anyway, as always, links will be in the description to my TikTok and YouTube channel. If you would like to check them out, please feel free. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving me a review on your respective podcast provider. It helps me no end. If you think there is one of your friends or family members that might like this podcast or the episode, please share it. If you want to hear more, please feel free to check out the other episodes and maybe drop me a follow. With all that out of the way, I will try to do something a little less intense for the next episode. Maybe bring back part two of the Dark History of London. So please join me for the next episode and more Dark History. <laughs>